You ready to get into the word? Good. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Today we are continuing our series through the gospel of Luke. And uh, as we start, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of the marshmallow test? You, you, you've heard of the marshmallow test? Okay, so like one person. Okay, all right. So I'm going to need to explain this for you then. Here's the marshmallow test. Okay, so the marshmallow test was originated in the 1960s. Um, this, by the way, isn't just you testing marshmallows. That's not what that is. The marshmallow test was originated in the 1960s by a group of uh, researchers from Stanford. And it basically goes like this. A group of children are sat in a room by themselves, and they, are, they have in front of them on a table a plate. And on that plate is a solitary marshmallow. And then they're told by an adult that they are going to be left alone in the room and that they can eat the marshmallow if they want to eat the marshmallow, but if they don't eat the marshmallow, they will be given a second marshmallow when the adult returns into the room. And then the adult leaves and says, okay, so you can eat it if you want, but if you don't eat it, you'll get a second marshmallow when I come back. And this is a test usually done with children who are uh, younger children. They're four, five, six years old, and so uh, they're left in this room and, uh, for a certain period of time. And, well, guess what happens? A lot of them eat the marshmallow. Like a ridiculous amount of kids will eat the marshmallow. In fact, you can go and watch some of these videos. They're on, online. And some of the best parts is just the first couple of moments where the kid is kind of trying to figure out, like, okay, well, am I going to eat the marshmallow? And, and they're, they're, like, really struggling to, to remember that if they don't eat the marshmallow, they'll get two marshmallows later on. And, um, and, and sometimes they'll take the marshmallow and they'll, they'll hold it and they'll smell it. Okay, then they'll put it back on the plate, and, and a couple of kids will take it and they'll lick it, right? And then they'll put it back on the plate. That doesn't count, right? I didn't eat the marshmallow. I just licked the marshmallow, and then I put it back on the plate. And, and then after a little while, and some, some of these experiments, the marshmallow test will go for sometimes 15 minutes, and a kid will just be sitting with a marshmallow in front of you. And, and, and if you're like me, you're wondering if that actually constitutes as torture. But uh, they, they, So they're left with this marshmallow, and sometimes uh, the videos will show pictures of the marshmallow afterwards and sometimes there's no marshmallow to show a picture of, and sometimes it's a perfectly pristine marshmallow. I saw a video this week of a kid who, like, pounded the marshmallow with his fist because he wanted to make it less appealing to himself, and one kid who had eaten a ring around a marshmallow, so it looked kind of like a like an eaten apple where you'd, like, eaten to the core. I didn't eat the whole marshmallow, so do I still get two marshmallows, right? That's the marshmallow test. Now, the marshmallow test was originally said to be a predictor of future success, specifically in the areas of academics, finances, and physical health. Now, the original findings predicted that a longer, the longer a child resisted the marshmallow, the more likely they were, be, they were to be successful later on in life. So the longer you resist what you want, the more likely you will be a success later on. Now, years later, this research was actually picked up again in the 2010s and uh, kind of called into question. There were, some, there were some doubts cast on the marshmallow test, and it turns out that there might be all kinds of different reasons why a child might eat or not eat a marshmallow, and that the likelihood that that's a really good predictor of whether or not you're going to be a successful person later on in life is not as strong as 
uh, as maybe people thought. And we all said, oh, good, okay, because I ate a marshmallow once when I was a kid, and, and I'm really glad that that doesn't mean that I'm not a successful person now. So newer, later research actually found that, that certain factors that play into whether or not a child will resist a marshmallow when left alone in a room might have something to do with parenting style. Could, could have something to do with that. It, it might actually have something to do with socioeconomic status. I actually read an article this week that said something really interesting, that a, a child whose parents are wealthy and married is less likely to eat the marshmallow than a child who is from an impoverished environment. And part of the reasons why they started actually kind of doing some psychological breakdown on that is that the children who eat the marshmallow, marshmallow quickly come from uh, backgrounds where they don't know if they can trust where their next meal is coming from and what adults say to them. So I don't know if I believe you that I'm going to get a second marshmallow, so I'll just eat this one now because I don't know if what's coming is actually real. Does it make sense? So socioeconomic and parenting style and kind of upbringing of the child, all of these things can play into whether or not the child will eat the marshmallow in the moment. Personality and temperament plays into whether a, a child will eat a marshmallow. There are some kids who are just better at self-control than other kids, right? Uh, some kids want to just eat the marshmallow right away. And I saw some of the videos where the kid just like looks and as soon as the door closes, I'm eating that marshmallow, right? And then there's some other kids who like as soon as the door closes, like there was this one kid and I don't know why, but he was dressed like a Dalmatian and he, was put, he just put his hands on the table and he stared off into the camera like this. He didn't look at the marshmallow one single time for 15 minutes. And he didn't eat the marshmallow. He did a great job. And then there was one little girl who ate the marshmallow before the adult even left the room. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty good, right? So personality and temperament probably play into uh, this. Uh, maybe to a, to a lesser extent, whether the child is hungry or not. Like, did you eat, just eat a full meal? You're not really hungry. Uh, will you want to eat anything? And then uh, nobody says anything about this, but I think this should play into factor because it would have played in for me whether or not you even like marshmallows. Right? Some kids just don't. I, like, I love a s'more now. But put a marshmallow in front of me when I was six? Nope. Throw it across the room? No problem. I don't want to have anything to do with it, right? Okay, so here's, here's the ultimate breakdown. The marshmallow test can't really tell us if our children are going to grow up to be successful, which is why we didn't offer a marshmallow during our child dedication this morning. Because that's not going to really determine whether or not these children are, will go, are going to grow up and be successful. But it does pose a really interesting and helpful question for us. The question is this. What is your marshmallow? What's your marshmallow? Because you've got one. Some of you have a whole bag of marshmallow, right? I, I, we all have several marshmallows. Uh, pose that question in another way. What is the thing that you would have a hard time resisting? What is the thing that if you knew you could get away with it, you would have a hard time resisting? Like this is the old, like, uh, if given the opportunity and you found a bag of money and you knew you could just keep the bag of money, what do you do with the bag of money? question, right? What do you do with temptation when it comes into your life?
And, and that's ultimately what this is designed to help us ask in our framework for today. What do you do with temptation? We begin by asking the question, what am I tempted by? And then we have to ask this question because this is the passage that we're studying today perfectly sets us up for this conversation. What exactly is it that we do in order to overcome temptation? This is an important question for us. I think it is more interesting to ask the question, what do we do to overcome temptation, than whether or not if you eat a marshmallow today, you will be financially wealthy in about 15 years. So with all of that being said, if you've turned in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, we are at chapter 4, and we are going to continue our series through the Gospel of Luke. Now, my hope here today is that as we look at the, at the temptation of Jesus, that's the story that we're about to read, uh, my hope is that you will be encouraged, first of all, by knowing that Jesus overcame temptation, that he did not ever sin. That's really good news. The second thing that I hope is that you will walk out of here with some practical steps and some encouragement that you also can overcome temptation in your life. And I think there's a lot of people who just sort of go through their Christian life thinking, well, I'm always going to be tempted by that particular marshmallow, and for the rest of my life, I am always going to struggle with that. And I just say that is not, friends, that is not what Scripture teaches it is not your lot in life to just struggle bus your way to death and then maybe you send the, the, under the bar so you can get into heaven. That is not the gospel. The gospel is freedom from sin. Amen? And so we need to talk about this, and hopefully you feel encouraged today as we look at the temptations of Christ and how he overcame all of those. Let's read Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We'll go to verse 13 today. I'll read this to you in the CSB translation. It says, then Jesus left the Jordan. Pause. Then what just happened? The baptism. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And this is where we see the Trinity together in one moment. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes and lands like in the form of a dove, lands on Jesus. And this is a depiction of the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the ministry that Jesus is about to begin. And the good pleasure of the Father before Jesus has ever done any public ministry, the Father is already pleased with him. That is exactly what just happened. Then Jesus left the Jordan, what? full of the Holy Spirit. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live by bread alone. And your translation might also include the phrase, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, so he took him up, so the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus said to him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished tempting him, he departed from him for a time. And in some translations it says, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay, so I would just like to say to you, we're not going to cover every single thing that you could possibly cover. This is a huge passage of scripture with deep, deep meaning and layers, right? Uh, there, are, there are ways that we could teach from this passage just to leaders and ministers and, and pastors and, and teachers of the gospel, and, and, and we would learn from the temptations of Jesus just what it means to be a leader or a teacher or a pastor. And then, and then today our focus will be more on how do we overcome sin and temptation in our own lives as we are followers of Jesus. Uh, so there, and, and then there are other different lenses that we could study this passage through. And so I really just want to say to you, there are many other things that we could say than what we are going to say today. But why don't we begin with answering a first question? Why in the world was Jesus tempted? Why would he be tempted? Like, wouldn't the devil just not even try? Why would he, why would he be tempted? Well, I think that this is allowed to happen and, in fact, orchestrated by God himself to have happened for multiple reasons, and I'll just give you two of them today. I, one of the reasons I find that Jesus was tempted here is to reverse the failure of the first Adam. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. And in Genesis, we see that sin entered the world after the devil tempted Adam and Eve. Adam, in Genesis, is the first Adam, and Scripture teaches us to refer to Jesus as the last Adam, right? So what was begun with Adam as sin entered into the world, the last Adam closes that chapter and begins a new story. So it, among other reasons, Jesus' temptation mirrors the temptation of Adam and Eve in some interesting ways. Again, we're not going to dig down into those today. You can study them, and I welcome you to talk with me about it later if you have questions. But Jesus is tempted as the last Adam in order to demonstrate that he is about to undo the curse of sin that entered the world after the first Adam failed to resist the temptation to sin. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus would be tempted, why this is an important moment. A second reason, and I think this helps to set the tone for what we're talking about today, is that Jesus was tempted to indicate the tactics of the enemy against mankind. In other words, Jesus sets the devil up to reveal his hand to us. The devil really doesn't have any new moves. He, he's... He's been doing this for a long, long time, and he hasn't ever created anything. He hasn't ever come up with anything. He's just able to uh, mimic and repeat, and he repeats the same tactics against us that he brought against Jesus all these years later. In fact, much of the devil's plan here and with us is to use the world around us and our own desires against us to lead us into sin. And John actually warns us about this in 1 John 2.16. He says, he writes this, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or the pride in one's possessions, 
These are the things that are the temptations that we face in life. And then James writes about this in James chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Which, by the way, if that was your question today, and you wonder, does temptation ever come into my life because God is tempting me? The answer, James says, No, don't even say that. It's not possible. He says, don't say I'm being tempted by God because God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when, and here's when you get tempted, when he or she is drawn away and enticed by their own evil desire. James, gotcha. Right? When are you tempted? When you're drawn away by your own evil desire desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. In his book, The Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard wrote, temptation to sin is all, temptation to sin always originates in desire. We've set our hearts on too many different things, some of which are wrong or evil, and all of which are in conflict with some others. In other words, we want so many different things that aren't God that we're all twisted up inside, and no wonder we fall into temptation to sin so frequently because we want so many different things. And, if, and, it, and the implication here is if we would just narrow our desires to be God and his stuff, then we would overcome the temptation to sin a great deal more. See, we are tempted to pursue what we desire and what we have the means to pursue. We position ourselves to be tempted whenever we desire things other than God. And then we sin when we give in to the temptation and we actually pursue those desires in ways outside of God. Which is interesting because sometimes you can actually desire something that is good, but go about trying to get it in ways that God did not sanction you to get it. Right? I'll give you a, a, just a straightforward example. God created sex. It is good. It is designed to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the covenant context of marriage, which is a lifelong covenant. Any engagement of sexual activity of any kind outside of one man with his one wife is outside of God's intended plan and therefore is giving in to the temptation to sin. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't feel good, but it is not good if it's not inside the confines of God's intention. Does this make sense? Right, so something good even that God designed to be enjoyed can be sinful if pursued outside of God's order. Okay, so now let's just clarify something. You are never going to be faced with a temptation to turn stones into bread. It's never going to happen. Um, you might be very, very hungry, but the reason you'll never be tempted to turn stones into bread is because even if you have the desire to eat a rock, you don't have the means to turn it into bread. Jesus was tempted to turn a stone into bread because he had the desire to eat and he had the means to turn a stone into bread. The devil didn't, like, like Jesus' response to turn stones into bread wasn't, are you kidding? I can't do that. Now, if the devil tempts Kyle to turn stones into bread, Kyle should respond by saying, that's not a temptation at all. I cannot physically do that. But that teaches us an important lesson. You will not be tempted to do things you cannot do. And you also won't find it tempting for you to do things you do not desire. 
right? So this is why uh, temptation to sin in your life might look different than the temptation to sin in your neighbor's life. This is why men and women are tempted differently. This is why people of different age or demographics or financial status are tempted differently. This is why you are tempted differently than the person sitting next to you. That is not a value judgment. That's actually a picture of your unique design in God and that the devil then comes and twists God's design and tries to use it against you to walk away from God. So, Having said that you won't be tempted the same way that Jesus was tempted, you will be tempted with the same kinds of temptation. Like we read in 1 John, uh, you will be tempted by uh, the, the lust of the flesh, you will be tempted by the lust of the eyes, and you will be tempted by the pride of life or the pride of your possessions. Again, temptation is rooted in your desires, which conflict with God's desires and then lead you into sin. So then... Let's jump in to studying the three temptations of Jesus. The first temptation of Jesus, I would call today the temptation to provide for yourself. Listen again to what the devil says to Jesus. As he leaves the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led away in the wilderness, he ate nothing during those days. And when, he, uh, when they were over, all of these 40 days, he was hungry. I love a biblical understatement. Um, he was hungry, guys. 40 days, he was hungry. Yeah, okay. So the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. First of all, let's just say this very clearly. The devil was not saying, are you the son of God? He was challenging him. Be like the son of God. Come on, Jesus. That's, that's the tone in which this should be interpreted and understood. Uh, but but I, I think this temptation is deeper than simply just saying, hey, Jesus, feed yourself. The, the deeper temptation here is to allow your physical need to become your primary need. That's the temptation, is for the thing that you need to feel like it is the most important thing going on in your life. Uh, then, then also, to go further than that, the temptation is to take matters into your own hand, and rather than trusting God to provide for your need, to work out a way that you can provide for your own need without needing God. Okay, so remember again, the, first temp the temptations in, in 1 John, this is the temptation related to the lust of the flesh. The temptation comes into our lives then as we experience desire. Just for clarification, again, the desires you experience are not inherently bad. Just because you want money doesn't inherently mean you're greedy. That's, that's an important Right? The desire to provide for your family financially is not a sin. How you go about it, like don't go robbing banks. Don't embezzle. Understood? Okay. Again, let's, let's, so the, the temptation comes into our lives as we experience desires, and then we are tempted to elevate those desires to needs. I desire to provide for my family. Fine. I need to provide for my family. There's a fine line there, isn't there? Who actually is providing for your family? God. I think he would love to use you to do that. Do you need to provide for your family? We're going to step on some toes right now, aren't we? Do you need to provide for your family? No, God will provide for your family. 
And inside God's will and order and purpose and blessing over your life, you will be blessed to provide for your family. Does it make sense? Now, I, you're, some of you are already going, but, but I'm like biblically mandated to provide for my family. Right. So do the things that position you in God's will so that God can provide for you so you can provide for your family. I, I'm not saying don't take it seriously that you should provide for your family. I'm saying do it in the right order. Right? Because a lot of us actually put provide for family as a function of my Christian, Christian identity. And if I don't provide for my family, then I'm not a good Christian. And you just leave relationship with God all out on the side. And you go hustle and work. And some of us even lie. Or l- let's just go this far. Some of us will uh, reject the Sabbath mandate and work ourselves to death in the name of providing for our family. You've actually been... Uh, you've actually stumbled into, I will provide for myself, even at the cost of the day that the Lord told me to rest. So I won't be obedient to God so that I can be obedient to God. You see how you've twisted? Right. So I'm not, it, it just, just be intellectually honest. Just be spiritually honest about it. You should provide for your family, but in the right order. Yes? Okay, so when our desires are elevated to needs, we begin to get into trouble. You do not need to be independently wealthy. You do not need to have a, an active sex life. But many people treat these things as if they are needs rather than desires that God intends to be blessings. Right? That's just a couple of examples. Now, Temptation also comes into our life um, as we experience desires that are elevated to needs. And then as we are tempted then to abandon dependency on God to provide for our own needs our way. So just to be really, really clear, this is how this happens. Again, nothing in this is saying that the, the things that we desire are inherently bad. Unless your desire is to murder somebody or, you know... Uh, break one of the Ten Commandments, like those are negative, there's obviously negative desires, but desires for things that are good that God intends for you to bless, have at it in God's order. So this, this again, is not to say we cannot enjoy good things. So then the question is, how do we actually overcome this temptation? I think the answer is we begin to look at Jesus's example. In verse 4 of Luke chapter 4, Jesus says to the devil, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus here is quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 8, specifically verse 3. And in its context, which by the way, the devil will come at you with scripture out of context. Okay, so... Um, sidebar, and some Christians will be used by the devil to do that as well. Be very careful who you listen to. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 1, says, carefully follow every command I am giving you today. What does it say? Carefully follow every command. Do that. It's marching orders, yes, that I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors. Remember that the Lord your God led you in the entire journey, these 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which your ancestors, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
You have to put this in its context, friends. Jesus is talking about how he provided miraculous food for people so that they would know that God is their provider. Under what context? You obey and let God lead you wherever it is that he will lead you and work out in you all of the things that he'll work out in you over the time that it takes to work those things out. For the Israelites, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they had some junk that they needed to have worked out in their life. And so isn't it interesting that after 40 years, this is what God would say to the people, that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus points to the same scripture. Interesting. Interesting. God provides for the people in the wilderness. Don't ever forget that. But you don't just get to say God will provide for me while I'm over here doing whatever I want and hustling and that God will use my hustle to agree with my provision of myself. God will lead you to how you are to serve him and then he'll bless you. Amen? Okay, so what is the lesson that people wanted, that God wanted the people to learn in hunger, that even in our physical desires, even those are meant to remind us that our greatest need is actually God's word. When you, when you fast, when you practice the discipline of fasting, you learn to live dependent on God spiritually while you deny the physical hunger. And you do that on purpose to increase your spiritual dependency on God. Okay, so then, before we move on to the second temptation, here are two practices that will help you resist the temptation to provide for yourselves. And we'll put all of these together on the screen at the end of the message. But the first one will be scripture reading and memorization. I mean, Jesus had scripture bars, right? Like the devil comes at him with twisted scripture and Jesus quotes scripture. So, scripture reading. Take the word of God in every day. And I have friends who've come to me after I've recommended scripture reading every single day as a spiritual discipline and said I really struggle to read. And then the great response that we get to say now is, isn't it good to live in the future where you can have someone else read the word of God to you every single day? Right? You have a computer in your pocket that will read to you in any translation you want it. I mean, learn the original language if you want and have someone read to you in Greek and Hebrew. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can understand it. But listen to or read the word of God every day. And then when tempted to satisfy physical needs outside of God's plan and purpose for your life, read and quote scriptures that remind you that God is your provider and that you don't actually need the thing that you are being told you need. That what I actually need is I, I need God and his word. And increase your dependency on him. So practice scripture reading and memorization on a regular basis. The second principle, or, or practice rather, would be the practice of fasting. I mentioned it just a few minutes ago, but we fast for several reasons, and one of them is to train the physical body and the spirit to become less dependent on temporary satisfaction. Fasting is the thing that those kids are trying to do in the marshmallow test. I, I don't want to be dependent on the thing. None of them needed to eat a marshmallow. No one has ever needed to eat a marshmallow. Except you're sitting there with a marshmallow in front of you for 15 minutes and you're five years old. I need to eat a marshmallow. So fasting is the spiritual discipline that lets us grow up a little bit so we can look at a marshmallow and say, I don't actually need that. What I need is God. Yes? Okay, so the devil tempts us to provide 
for ourselves, just like he tempted Jesus. And then the next thing is that he moves on to what we will call the temptation to position yourself. In Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 5, it says, So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. So the temptation here is to gain power and influence by means other than godly provision. Now, if we were speaking to a room full of Gen Alpha and Gen Z people, we would say the temptation for you is going to look like doing whatever you can, even if it doesn't honor God, to gain as many eyes on you as you possibly can to gain clout and become an influencer. Because this is like the next thing to godliness for that generation, right? For us, though, who are a little bit older and and maybe we have families and we have bills to pay, the temptation here is to try to find ways to get ourselves promoted so we can get as much influence and power so that our lives can become as easy as possible, as quick as possible, and to do that outside of God's timing and provision. We experience this temptation every time we seek influence or power over other people. And John, in 1 John, called this the lust of the eyes. I see it, and I want it. And again, this can come in all kinds of different ways. This might look unique and distinct in your life, but we see something, and we are tempted to make it our own. With the source of this sin, it looks like things like abuse of power. It looks like tearing other people down because it makes me feel good. It looks like self-promotion. And then Jesus responds to this sin very, very quickly. And he says something interesting here that I think we want to get into. In verse 8, he says, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, on the surface, you go, yeah, that totally makes sense. Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Of course, that's what he would say because he was tempted to bow his knee and worship the devil. So his answer is going to be, nope, only worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only. But what's really interesting to me here, like in a lot of places in Scripture, is what isn't said. Because the devil stands up and he goes, I have authority over all the world and the ruler of the world, and I can give authority and power to whoever I want, and there's something in my brain that knows that God is the ultimate authority that says that can't be right. Jesus, why didn't you tell him he was wrong? The problem with that is that he wasn't wrong. In fact, a few places in Scripture refer to the devil as the ruler of this modern or current world. In John 12, 31, Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And in Ephesians 2, 2, Paul again calls him the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. So, friends, this world that you live in has been given over to the devil for a time. So he was not lying when he said he could give power to whomever he wanted. He wasn't lying about that. But this means that our human pursuit of power, though, if you think about this, that when we pursue power, we are pursuing something that only the devil is giving to us. This is why he says, if you want power and authority, just bend your knee and worship me and I'll give it to you. Friends, do you realize the implication of what I just said? This means that the pursuit of human power is likened to Satan worship. 
These, these things cannot coexist, the pursuit of power and life in the kingdom. Now, you can begin to think about all the things I might say to church leaders about the pursuit of power and how we really need to not be hungry for power and we need to lay down all of our identity. But even for us, I think we can begin to understand just as followers of Jesus, as, as disciples and disciple makers, we can understand why Jesus would then say, worship and serve God only. But when you hear that, now you would understand that also means something. That has implications. That means that you cannot worship God and serve him only and also want to be powerful. That means you cannot worship God and serve him only and also want to have influence. You cannot worship and serve God only and want to be known. I must decrease so that Christ will increase. Never inside the kingdom of God the other way around. So worship and service becomes a weapon of spiritual warfare. I worship God, I'm doing spiritual warfare. It is an attack against the kingdom of darkness. When I worship God and when I serve him only, it's like I'm saying, not today, Satan. You don't get this day, you don't get the breath in these lungs, you don't get the praise that comes out of this mouth, and you do not get to be honored by the work that I do with my life. I will not seek promotion or to be known. To worship means to live a life submitted to the one you worship. To bring glory and honor to them. And then service means simply doing things, whatever it is that you do, as if it is an act of submission, a gift to the person that you worship, right? Like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And we hear that and we want to say, of course, whatever you do, don't do anything for the glory of Satan, the glory of the devil the glory of the enemy of your soul. But then we have to remember that sometimes you are the enemy of your own soul if, if you pursue power, especially over other people. Okay, so then I could go on and on and on about that, but let me give you two practices here that will help us to resist the temptation to position ourselves. First, the practice of radical generosity. Uh, rather than building up your own kingdom, increase others by giving away what you have. Be radically generous. You can do this by giving physical resources to people that you find that are in need. You can do this by giving promotion in any place where you have authority, uh, which at minimum sounds or looks like giving compliments to people in public when they do good work. Right? So be radically generous. And then, and then secondly, this is, this is wildly practical. I would say... Limit and direct your media engagement toward godly worship. I, I know this sounds like I'm just pulling this out of thin air. It, it could sound like I just, just, where is that coming from? But think for a second that what you give your attention to shapes and forms your life. You are being spiritually formed every single day by what you give your attention to. 
And media is designed to lead you towards the worship of man and the devil himself. You know this to be true. This is not a conspiracy. There is not a devil under every bush, but I think there's probably one on every channel. And so limit your, uh, your media consumption and engagement. We, we understand that the more that you consume, the more praise you are giving to that thing that you are consuming or the spirit behind it. So very practically, set screen limits. Uh, there's a pastor that I, I was reading some of his work recently, and, and he says he actually has decided to set a four-hour-a-week limit on TV and movies for himself. Four hours a week. I don't watch any more than four hours. Just for the record, you can get in like two solid movies or like half of Dune. Um, a couple of, couple of episodes of something that at the end of it you probably don't remember. Uh, you, could, you can still like watch some stuff, right? Catch a basketball game, like the first inning of a baseball game. Okay, so set limits. This one, this one also, though, let's, let's add this. Uh, don't watch films or movies that depict acts that pull on your malformed desires. Okay, so if you came out of a life of uh, addiction to drugs and alcohol, don't watch shows and movies that glorify the use of drugs and alcohol. Apply that to your marshmallow. Okay, then engage in more worship and God-oriented content than not, by a, by a mile. Engage in more godly worship, right? I, I, was in a, I was in a mood to listen to some indie music recently, and I thought, I wonder how many good like indie worship songs are out there. So I just went on Spotify, and I just went indie Christian worship. And I pulled up a playlist that was, that was called Gen Z worship and went, yep, that's the one. And listen, I've been listening to that thing. My kids and I are listening to worship music together. I was making spaghetti last night at the house. We just had some worship songs on. And then all of a sudden, just because the like algorithms and the playlists and all that went on to this song that wasn't even, I didn't even know it was on the playlist, but literally I, I stumbled my way into a playlist that is just singing scripture over music. It's just, just random artists just singing here. Just sing Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Just over, I just stumbled my way onto it. Now, I could equally just go on to Instagram and just kind of stumble my way onto all sorts of other stuff. Go on to YouTube and stumble my way into whatever that algorithm that is absolutely led by human beings and probably the devil himself, and, and just be led, right, and I'm only saying that kind of tongue-in-cheek, and be led into something that doesn't glorify God. And so set limits on how much media you consume every week, period, and then in your media consumption, don't consume or engage in the kind of media that God wouldn't watch with you if you were sitting on the same couch. It is wild to me how I'm almost 40 years old and I still need to create spiritual disciplines that speak to my soul as if it's five. Right? Would you watch that if Jesus was in the room? Would you have said that if Jesus was listening? Right? I know I'm not the only one who feels like a spiritual five-year-old. 
So the devil tempts us to provide for ourselves. He, he tempts us to position ourselves, and these practices can help. Let's move to the third of the temptations of Jesus, the temptation to proclaim yourself. In verse, beginning in verse 9, it says, So he took him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, here the devil basically says, okay, fine, if you won't worship me, then proclaim yourself out to the people, and they'll worship you. Like, receive their worship now. This is essentially what he is being tempted to do, and I'll explain where we get that understanding from. You see, in Malachi chapter 3, there's a prophecy starting in the very first verse of Malachi chapter 3, where it says, see, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. I am not going to get into all of the uh, the prophetic implications and what it was that that was actually talking about, but I will just say to you this, that it was believed in Jesus's day by the faithful Jewish people that the Messiah would suddenly appear in bodily form at the temple. And some people even began to teach that we think that the Messiah will appear at the top of the temple and he'll fly down and he'll overthrow the Roman rulers and kick everyone's butt. And this was some of the way that they would talk about this prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. So the devil is saying, if you throw yourself down and suddenly appear and, and get caught up and carried by angels and it'll look like you're flying, that'll be awesome. You should totally do that. And then everyone will know you are the Messiah. But here's, here's the thing. This is not simply a temptation to reveal himself early, uh, but to proclaim himself, which... We would, I would understand if part of your thinking is, why would that be so terrible? And it would be so terrible because there was a very specific order to how things needed to be done. And Jesus, to proclaim himself that way and to receive worship before having died on the cross and conquered death by raising from the dead on the third day, this would have been outside of God's designated process for the delivery of the people. So the devil is actually trying to be crafty here to almost trick Jesus, not almost, to trick Jesus into doing what will eventually be done to be proclaimed as the Messiah, but to do it himself in his own power by superpowers and to do it outside of God's timing. And in fact, the devil is so crafty, he's actually using scripture to try to get Jesus to do this. In fact, what he is quoting here is Psalm 91, kind of. He's, he's quoting Psalm, Psalm 91, and he's twisting it in order to get Jesus to do uh, this proclaiming of himself. In fact, Psalm 91, this will sound familiar based on what we've already heard the devil say to Jesus. Starting in verse 9, says, Because you have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you. Listen again. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no harm will come to you. Psalm 91 goes on to say, No plague will come near your tent. 
For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways that will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and they will trample and you will trample the young lion and the serpent. And Psalm 91 goes on and it has gone on for what we would refer to as eight verses before that as well. Now, scripture does say that God will miraculously provide for you and protect you. It does say that. You can, you can take that to the spiritual bank. Scripture absolutely says God will protect you and provide for you. Amen? But the devil is crafty, and the part that he left out is the phrase, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. What's the implication? Psalm 91 says, if you trust in and build your entire life inside of trust for God... Then God will protect you miraculously and provide for you everything that you need. If you make God your dwelling place. If your entire life is built in God, then he will provide for you. And the devil says, forget all that dwelling inside God. Take matters into your own hand and get these people to recognize that you're the Messiah. Come on. If you're not going to worship me, make them worship you. So the temptation here is Jesus you really should proclaim how awesome you are. For us, this looks like the temptation to get results that might look like godly results without the process that God would have us go through to get those results. Uh, it's, It's like saying, look what I can do on my own. I don't need God to live the good life. But John, in 1 John, that we referred to earlier, would refer to this as the pride of life or the pride of one's possessions. I'm prideful in what I can do on my own. We experience this temptation when we want to take shortcuts or to proclaim our own glory. This happens when we don't actually trust that God's plan is good. You know when this happens the most? When Christians experience suffering. When we experience suffering. Oh, and um, I'm just going to come over here for a second and talk to you like a friend. Okay, This happens the most to Pentecostals when we experience suffering. We get in in a lot of trouble when we forget that God has a structure and order and he is sovereign. And there is a a teaching. I'm, I'm just coming over here for a second. I'm just talking to you like a friend. Okay, just, okay. There is a teaching that goes around in the church that says that if you say the right words, that God has to, okay, and friends, can I just say to you, anytime you use the phrase God has to, you had better finish that sentence by saying, do whatever he wants. (laughs) He has to do whatever he wants, right? Now, I can read scripture and I can have a pretty good argument for what I know God will do because he's good and he's faithful, right? And Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so what he was doing 2,000 years ago, healing people in the power of the name of Jesus, he still is doing today. But I don't get to dictate the healing of God. I pray for the healing of God in the name of Jesus, and somewhere in the midst of prophetic and, 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 and Pentecostal fire and the sovereign will and timing of God, God answers prayers miraculously. 
And sometimes God answers prayers by bringing a person to heaven. Sometimes God answers your prayer for supernatural provision by giving you a supernatural provision of an opportunity to learn how to trust God because you don't actually need money. Okay, so just, are we clear? Okay, so let's, let's come back over here. Back behind the pulpit. Now I'm preaching again. All right. Whew. So we experience this temptation when we want to take shortcuts to proclaim our own glory. The problem that, that we will get into is when we want to tell God what to do. Right? When to promote me. When to make people recognize how amazing I am. When to fill in the blank. And so Satan says to Jesus, uh, just take it into your own hands, man. Just, you know, uh, can you really trust God's time? Doesn't this sound a little bit like, did God really say that if you eat the fruit you would die? Did God really? You won't, surely you won't actually die. Which was like true and not true at the same time. The devil is crafty. Yeah? So he says to you, just take it into your own hands. Wouldn't it be spectacular if they knew how good and smart and amazing you were? (laughs) That would be great. Which is why Jesus then responds to this temptation by saying, do not test the Lord your God. This is, this is Pastor Jesus saying, hey, you, you want to put God to the test like that? Okay, so in, re- in resisting this temptation, then what does Jesus model for us? He models radical obedience. How do we know Jesus modeled radical obedience? Because not only does he not take his, uh, the process and his promotion and proclaiming himself as Messiah into his own hands in this moment, he doesn't do it now. He also doesn't do it in the garden when he is under so much stress that he is sweating blood while asking God if there was any other way we could save these people. But nevertheless, your will be done. Right? Jesus models a life of radical obedience all the way through, even through suffering. And, and this is not a simple thing to do just because he was God. I don't want you to get the idea that, well, he was Jesus. That was easy for him to do. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 says, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appealed with, with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Interesting that Jesus is said to have learned obedience. That's interesting. And what was it that taught him the lesson of obedience? Suffering. Yikes. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who suffer. I mean, obey him. Yeah, obey him. That's what it says. So Jesus suffered, and yet he went through the process to accomplish God's purpose, not in his own time or in his own way. He did not test the Father. He obeyed. 
So then, here are two practices, and then we'll move to a conclusion with this. Two practices to help us resist the temptation to position ourselves. Number one, regular acts of service. Regular acts of service. This doesn't just mean serve in your local congregation, although I heard a rumor recently that we're going to be building an ushers team soon. Serve in your local church. Sign up to serve in life, kids. We always need teachers in life, kids. Right, John and Ashley? This is how I keep our kids' directors happy as I say stuff like that regularly. But, but more than that, regular acts of service, especially to those who cannot pay you back. And in ways that, are, that, that other people's thankfulness doesn't boost your ego. Yeah? Okay, regular acts of service. Do it. You're smart enough to understand what that would look like. Go and do. And then silence and solitude. The silence and solitude is a great way to practice the resistance of promoting yourself. I really want to talk about this great thing that I did the other day. I had this great idea. So what do I need to do? Sit and be quiet. <laughs> this is a good practice for preachers on a Monday. Right? Especially if I feel like the sermon went really well. Like on a week where five of you come up and go, that was the sermon I absolutely needed. That was the greatest thing ever. And inside I'm going, this is going to cost me an extra 15 minutes of silence and solitude on Monday. <laughs> you can compliment me. It does make me feel good. Um, that's five minutes right there. Okay. Here's how you do it. Here's how you practice silence and solitude. It's going to be awkward if none of you say anything nice about this sermon later. Uh, so you plan, plan a time. Pl say plan. You don't stumble your way into silence and solitude. If you find yourself stumbling into silence and solitude, and I mean this genuinely, that is more like depression. Uh, the, the discipline of silence and solitude is an intentional act. Not I just am sad all the time and quiet and don't want to spend time with anybody. I genuinely mean this. Friends, if that's you, you do not need to practice the discipline of silence and solitude. You need to practice the discipline of spending time having a nice conversation with a friend. Okay? I genuinely, I seriously mean that. Okay. However, you plan a time to sit alone in silence. Uh, you, th this practice then centers God in your attention, and it helps to increase humility because as you're centering God, you remember that you're small and he isn't, and so that's very helpful for you. And then as we remember that God is, is in control even while we are still and silent over here, it's helpful for us to know I'm sitting over here doing nothing and God is running the world. That's a helpful practice, <laughs> right? Okay, so how do you do this? You sit in a comfortable and uninterruptible place. I have a friend who literally does this in their closet. You turn off all the noise. You tell the people in your life, I'm taking time to be silent and be with God. Please respect that. And most of the time, that will, that will happen. Set a timer for 10 minutes to begin. You can do more, but I recommend if you're just beginning this practice, you start with 10 minutes. And then do this. Breathe. And sit in the presence of God, your mind 100% will wander. 
it will go all over the place. And as it wanders, rather than going, oh no, I'm such a terrible person at practicing silence and solitude, my, wa my mind wanders all the time, how dare I, I'm such a failure. Rather than that, you can, when your mind wanders, just simply say this, I now have an opportunity to give my mind back to God as a gift. There's a pastor, Rich Velotis, who wrote on this practice, and he actually said that the faithful practice of silence and solitude is like a thousand opportunities to give your attention to God as a gift and an act of worship. So sit for 10 minutes in silence, and every time your mind wanders, go, I give God, I give you my focus back as a gift. Do it for 10 minutes. When you can do it for longer than 10 minutes, increase the time. And when the timer is up, go back to doing whatever it is that you were doing and have fun thinking that you're really important. This is because the discipline of silence and solitude is meant to work that out of our lives. So we become humble people. So we resist this temptation by practicing these sorts of practices. Again, temptation comes to us as the enemy of our souls pulls on our own desire. And this is going to look different for every single one of you. It will look different for you than it does for me. But it will always be wrapped up in these three major character uh, categories. The desire to provide for yourself, the desire to position yourself, and the desire to proclaim yourself. And then we'll put these on the screen again for you as the titles of six disciplines that you can practice to resist temptation to sin. Scripture reading and memorization, fasting, radical generosity, as well as limit and directing media engagement toward godly worship, regular acts of service, and then silence and solitude. Now, before we pray and wrap up our time, and we'll leave those up on the screen for the rest of the time that we're here in the room today, but there is a final point that has to be made. This, this is very, very important uh, because, because we have to understand that practicing spiritual disciplines are a helpful framework. They are not a magic pill. And we learn this from the very first words we read in Scripture today in this sermon. Let me read to you again how Luke begins this encounter. In Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Jesus has just been baptized, and the very first thing that it says is this. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. Friends, you must practice discipline. The more you do, the stronger, stronger you will become, the easier it will be for you to resist the devil. But none of that will get you across the line to resist temptation to sin altogether without the power of the Holy Spirit. Disciplines are a guide to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You cannot willpower your way into a sin-free life. You can only receive the forgiveness from Jesus, the cleansing and grace for all of your sin, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that you can go and live a sin-free life. We know that this is wildly important because of the way Luke chapter 4 uh, ends in this section. In verse 13, it says, After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed him for a time or until an opportune moment. We know that the devil came back around. I can't get Jesus to sin, so I'll go after Judas. He'll come back. 
And he came back again, even for Jesus. So we must practice the disciplines that strengthen our ability to resist temptation. We must sustain a healthy relationship with God. And we must be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. So a final question. What is your marshmallow? What is, what is the thing that you are doing to increase your resistance to the marshmallow in your life? Or the many marshmallows? Maybe I can ask this question in this way. Where you are a weak person today, are you asking God to help you grow in strength? to resist sin. Let's pray. Before I lead us in a a moment of prayer to close our gathering, I want to invite you to begin the prayer. You can do this silently right where you're sitting, but would you take a moment and just reflect on the week that you have ended, and as we mark the beginning of a new week each Sunday, think about the previous week that you have lived. What sins have you committed in this week? Where have you fallen short? Remembering that Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not an opportunity for you to feel guilt and shame and condemnation, but an invitation into the grace of Jesus. Would you take a moment right where you are sitting and confess your sins to God? I encourage you to be specific and clear with God. This is not an opportunity. God does not need you to inform him how you sinned. You need to confess to God how you sinned. He already knows. He was there loving you in the moment. So perhaps you say, God, this week I lied. God, this week I I was prideful. God, this week I... And then you fill in the blank. As you confess to God, would you receive the grace of Jesus right now? Scripture says that as you confess your sins to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive. So I would stand being the the voice of the person representing God in this moment as a pastor or a a priestly voice in your life and, and say, as you confess, you are forgiven. Receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. So God, together today as a church, we say that we confess that we are sinners. We know, we know this, God, that temptation from sin doesn't come from you. It comes from the devil, and it comes even from our own desires. So we ask you, God, to forgive us and to give us grace where we need it, and we ask for your help in our areas of weakness. God, would you speak your pleasure over us like you did Jesus in the waters of baptism to say that this is your son in whom you are well pleased? Would you say to us, God, that we are your children and you are pleased with us? God, would you speak that to us in a way that we hear it so that we would pursue satisfaction for our souls in no other source?
We want to be so overwhelmed by your love that nothing else is interesting. And God, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that nothing else would be as strong in us as your presence and your power is. As we resist the enemy of our souls so that our lives will be pure. God, would you also rebuke the devourer so that your name will be glorified in our lives. And friends, before I pray a blessing over you and dismiss you from this room, I would just say there will be people at the prayer walls in the back of the room. If something that we've said today, that you've heard today, has moved you to a point of needing prayer, then I'm going to ask Pastor Greg and Tammy to be at one of our prayer walls. I'm going to ask Paul and Rhonda Smith if they would be at the other one of our prayer walls. They'll, they'll receive you in prayer today. And having said all of these things, I pray finally the priestly blessing over you, knowing that as you are purified by God, you are also commissioned then to his service. And you are eligible for his service because you are graced and forgiven by God. So I, I pray this blessing over you in the name of Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.